morning, everybody. Great to see you all today. My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here and part of our preaching team, and I'm excited to welcome you here as uh, we kick off Holy Week. Uh, this is officially Palm Sunday, which uh, commemorates the day when Jesus rode into town uh, to begin what's become the kind of Holy Week or Passion Week, meaning the suffering of Jesus. Uh, we'll celebrate that as well this Friday. I want to make sure you are aware of the Good Friday services uh, where we contemplate and celebrate the death of Jesus. So that's coming 3 o'clock, 4.30, and 6 o'clock on Friday. would love for you to join us. It's going to be a really special time. And then obviously, as Seth said, we celebrate Easter just next week. Uh, today, we're wrapping up this series that we've called Love Walked Among Us. And uh, I want to introduce it by, by telling you about this article that I read that was uh, really asking these public intellectuals this question, what day most changed the course of history? So I asked these various professors, various public intellectuals, what single day, is there a single day that most changed the course of history. History was headed one way, and after this day, it turned and went another. And so uh, some of you know Ken Burns. Ken Burns is a documentary filmmaker, did Vietnam and the Civil War and the baseball and all that stuff. Ken Burns says the day that most changed the course of history was June 28, 1914. He says, on that day, the Archduke of Austria, Franz Ferdinand's carriage driver, took a wrong turn, and they ended up in a cul-de-sac, giving an assassin an easy shot. This was the first in a set of dominoes that put in motion the two largest wars in world history, and it all came down to, the, to a wrong turn by a carriage driver. So that wrong turn, right, he gets assassinated, and World War I comes out of that, World War II comes out of that. So, boy, stinks for that carriage driver, right? Like, just follow directions, man. I guess he needed, you know, a Google Maps app. He didn't have it. So that's what Ken Burns says, June 28, 1914. Uh, a Yale history or a Yale history professor, Timothy Snyder, here's what he says. He says December 11th, 1241. Now, if that date doesn't ring a bell, it's because none of us know about this. So this is actually kind of interesting. He, he said this, the Mongol warrior Batu Khan on that date was poised to take Vienna and destroy the Holy Roman Empire. So the Mongolian army was there ready to overthrow the Roman Empire. That's an amazing thing. I didn't know about this. And on that day, the death of his emperor, uncle, caused him to return to Mongolia to discuss the succession plan. Had the uncle died a few years later, European history as we know it would not have happened. Isn't that interesting? Do you, did any of you know about that? A few of you, you didn't know about that. But, but, but I thought, man, that's really fascinating. Like, Europe would have been Chinese had that happened, right? They would have taken over, right? We're all going to be Chinese eventually. I mean, China's conquering everything, but, but it's just taken a few centuries longer than we had planned, all right? Christina H. Paxson, the president of Brown University, she said that the, the most uh, day that changed the course of history was the day that Johann Gutenberg finished his wooden printing press in 1440, right? That set Western civilization on a whole different path, right? We're reading printed word because of that. Uh, Neera Tanden, who's the president for the Center for American Progress, she gets a lot more narrow here, and she says August 26, 1920, uh, because by empowering half the population with the responsibilities of citizenship on that day, it's the day women gained the right to vote in the United States, it allowed the U.S. to live up to its fundamental values of opportunity and equality. Doesn't that sound like what someone who is the head of the Center for American Progress 
would say is the most important thing. Now, that, you might go, gosh, that's pretty narrow. Like, like the one day that one group of people in one country, that most changed the course of history? Like, that feels a little narrow. Uh, the next one, it feels a lot more broad, which is Freeman Dyson, who says, the day the asteroid hit the Yucatan Peninsula and wiped out the dinosaurs, <laughs> making room for our little primate ancestors to grow big and brainy and to take over the planet. And doesn't that guy look like the guy who would say that? <laughs> right? Like... Well, I want to argue today that actually there's a different date that has most changed the course of history, and it's April 3rd, 33 AD. This is the day, many historians believe, down to the date that Jesus of Nazareth was crucified. This is the day that God intervened in human history to begin to bring us and his world back into relationship with him. See, God had created the world and everything in it. Humanity had rebelled against God, said, we don't want anything to do with you, God. And as a result, the world was plunged into sin, plunged into decay, plunged into death. And it's on April 3rd, 33 AD, that Jesus of Nazareth goes to the cross and in so doing, dies for the sins of anyone who would ever believe in him and creates reconciliation between sinners and a holy God. The new creation kicks off on that day as the reconciliation that happens between God and sinful people, which will someday spill over into the rest of creation being renewed and restored, this day kicks it off. This is a huge day that changed the course of history. And this is the day that we're going to focus on in this last message in our series, Love Walked Among Us. If you have not been with us, this series idea is basically this. The scripture says that God is love. The scripture also says that Jesus is God. Therefore, when Jesus lived on this earth, it was love walking among us. So what we've been doing in this series is just looking at the ways that Jesus loved, how he loved, right? We would all say, oh yeah, love's important, love's valuable, we're pro-love, but it's hard to define it. It's hard to describe it. What is love exactly? Everybody also, by the way, thinks they're loving, one of the things that I think has been really beautiful, actually, about this series is that for the first few weeks, we're all like, yeah, 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 I'm loving, I'm loving, I'm loving. And then a few weeks into the series, we were like, I guess I'm not loving because Jesus really is this standard of love, and I don't meet up to it. And today, what we're going to do is uh, see how Jesus, as we just read a moment ago, loved his people to the end. That's what it says in John 13, 1. He loved them to the end. Just so you know, after this series, after Easter, we're going to kick off a new series uh, going through the book of Jonah. We'll do that through May. Hope you'll join us for that. But for now, let's finish this series that love walked among us. What we're looking at here today with the death of Christ, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, is the pinnacle of God's love for us. Look at what it says in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. It says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still rebelling, Christ died for us. While we were still ignoring God, Christ died for us. While we were doing the very things God commanded us not to do, Christ died for us. While we were failing to do the things that Christ commanded us to do, Christ died for us. 
This is the pinnacle of love. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So what I want to do is I just want to kind of uh, just let this story of the crucifixion of Christ just kind of wash and cascade over us. We already talked about that Jesus died. What I want to do is, is actually have you turn. If you have your Bible, you can turn to the book of Luke, uh, Luke chapter 2, or I'm sorry, Luke chapter 22, Luke chapter 22, and everything we're going to talk about really goes from Luke chapter 22, verse 39, to the end of Luke chapter 23. Now, a lot of times what I do when I'm up here and any of our other preachers is we kind of have a passage and we just kind of walk through it word by word, line by line, that sort of thing. As I just told you, uh, the end of chapter 22 and all of chapter 23, that's a, those are huge long chapters. So I'm not going to do that. But instead, what I want to do is, is just tell you the story of how Jesus loved his people to the end. And the image that I have in my head as I have been reading this and preparing this is the image of a boxer. I just see Jesus as like this boxer who just keeps getting hit and keeps getting hit and keeps getting hit. Who keeps getting knocked down and back up. Knocked down and back up. Blow after blow. Punch after punch. Horrific pain after horrific pain. And he just keeps taking it. Why? Why? This Jesus is the one who had raised dead people. This Jesus is the one who had fed thousands of people with just a few loaves and fish. This Jesus was the one who had opened the eyes of the blind. This Jesus was the one who took people who'd been paralyzed from birth and made them walk. This Jesus didn't have to go through this. He could have fought it. He could have stopped it. He could have overcome it. Why did he do it? So if you have your Bible, again, you can follow along with this. I'm not going to go word by word, but I will point out some verses along the way. In Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 39, before we jump in, let me pray. Father in heaven, show us Jesus. Help us see what drove him to lay down his life for us. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. We pick up the story, as I said, in Luke 22, beginning in verse 39, where Jesus had been uh, with his disciples celebrating this last Passover meal. He had told them, one of you will betray me. They all went, well, who, 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 who? They weren't sure what would happen. And then Jesus heads out to the garden where he is arrested. That's the first part of this story. There's kind of eight little uh, pieces to this story. The first is the, the garden of Gethsemane and his arrest. Jesus is overcome. He is praying with some of his disciples. And look at what he says in verse 42. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus is overwhelmed. Jesus is facing the reality that all of the weight of sin for everyone who would ever believe in him is about to be poured on him. Jesus is about to experience punishment 
for every sin for everyone who would believe in him. He's about to take that cup of God's righteous wrath against sin and drink it to the very last drop. And he says, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass. But you know what? Not my will, but yours. He decides to stay. Even though he's overwhelmed, he decides to stay. I love how author Tim Keller describes this. He says something happened in that garden. Jesus saw, felt, sensed something, and it shocked the unshockable son of God. What was it? He was facing something beyond physical torment, even beyond physical death, something so much worse that these were like flea bites by comparison. He was smothered by a mere whiff of what he would go through on the cross. You see his agony in verse 44. It says, being in agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Medical doctors actually say that what happens under some extreme stress is that sometimes people will have the capillaries in their head actually begin to burst. And when you sweat, that blood comes out of your pores and mingles with your sweat and you sweat drops of blood. That's what Jesus is going through. This is the kind of agony he's facing. This is the kind of weight he's feeling. Have you ever been so stressed and anxious and pressured that you sweat blood? So why did he do it? Next, we see Jesus denied by one of his closest friends. This is what we see beginning in verse 54. After Jesus is arrested, having been betrayed by one of his disciples, Judas, the scene shifts and all of a sudden we don't see Jesus anymore. He's inside a place being guarded and the scene goes outside to to Peter. Peter was one of the 12 disciples. Peter was probably the leader among them. His nickname was The Rock. Peter was the one that thought of himself being very strong and very mighty and he he actually had told uh, Jesus in front of the rest of the disciples, hey, if all these people betray you, frankly, I could see it, but never me. And Jesus told him, you know what, Peter, before the rooster crows three times, you're going to betray me. And so the scene shifts and here's Peter and he's outside the place where Jesus is being held. And one person after another says, hey, you're with that Jesus guy. And he says, no. And then the second person, a little girl, says, hey, you, you are with that Jesus guy, right? And he says, I don't know him. And the third person says, hey, there's something about your Galilean accent that gives you away. You're, with, you're one of his guys, right? And he says, I don't know what you're talking about. I never knew him. It says in verse 61, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Somehow Jesus threw maybe a window or a doorway, right at that moment, is able to turn and look at Peter. And it wrecks him. I was talking with Molly the other day about a situation that we were kind of my, my wife, we were, we were playing out like, well, what if this happened? What if this happened? Well, well these people, if, this, if we did that, like these people would be pretty upset. Like, and I said, honey, on the list of people who scare me, those are the last two people. Like, I, it doesn't matter if they wouldn't like that. I don't, whatever. Like, those people don't scare me. And she said, well, who does scare you? And I said, you. 
you scared? She said, what? What do you mean? I said, wait, wait, wait. Like, I'm not, like, walking on eggshells around you. I don't feel like, like, this isn't an abusive relationship. Like, I'm not that kind of scared. But you just have a lot of power over me because I care a lot about what you think. Like, you can just give me a look or say a word, and it's like, oops. (laughs) That's what happens to Peter here. Peter was Jesus' closest friend. Peter was Jesus' boldest supporter. And Jesus has to look out the window and see his closest friend say, I never knew that guy. And Jesus keeps moving forward. Why? Well, then Jesus is mocked in verses 63 through 65. The men who are holding Jesus, they put a crown of thorns on his head. They whip him and beat him and put a velvet purple robe around his shoulders and begin to mock him and pretend to bow down and say, hail, king of the Jews. And then they blindfold him and they hit him and they say, hey, who hit you, Mr. Prophet? Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the author and perfecter of life, the one who spoke creation into existence and upholds it with the word of his power, the scripture says, allows himself to be mocked and humiliated by his creatures. Why did he do it? Then he's sent to a phony trial at the end of chapter 22 before the council. These elders, these chief priests, these scribes, these Jewish leaders who've been against Jesus from the beginning, they were the people that were supposed to be looking for a Messiah. They were the ones that were supposed to be hoping for God to visit them. And when God visits them, they miss it. They trump up these fake phony charges. They, They accuse him, get this, they accuse him of blasphemy which is someone claiming to be God who isn't. And Jesus is claiming to be God, only he is. And at any moment, he could defend himself and he could speak and he could decimate these people. And like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. Why? Why did he stay silent? Why did he keep doing it? Why did he keep enduring? Well, this council doesn't have the power to execute Jesus. Legally, only Rome had that power, so they have to appeal to the Roman leaders, and that's what they do at the beginning of chapter 23. They appeal to Pilate, who's kind of a governor over the area, and they make up a charge about how Jesus is trying to you know, cause an insurrection and that sort of thing. And look at what it says in chapter 23 verse 4, Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowds, having asked some questions about this, I find no guilt in this man. Pilate goes, I I don't know what you guys are talking about. This feels like some in-house Jewish controversy, but this guy's clearly not guilty of anything. They keep pushing, they keep pushing. So Pilate says, fine, you know what? I'll send them to Herod. Herod was another uh, government official who was kind of intrigued by Jesus. So, So Herod asked him some questions. Jesus, again, doesn't really say anything, doesn't defend himself, doesn't doesn't give Herod what he wants. And so Herod sends him back. Look at verse 13 of chapter 23. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. 
even the pagan governor Pilate is able to go, this man's clearly innocent. And yet instead of releasing him, Pilate comes up with a new plan. And the new plan is this, because it's something Pilate would do every year at Passover. Remember, this is all happening at Passover. It was a custom, it was a tradition for Pilate as a way to kind of curry favor with the Jewish people whose land they were occupying. He would say, listen, here's what we're going to do every Passover is we're going to release a criminal. We're going to give a pardon to somebody that you want released. And so Pilate comes out and standing on one side is Jesus of Nazareth. This man who all these people have heard teach with authority like no one else. Who all these people have seen open the eyes of the blind. This man who Pilate himself has examined and says, there's no guilt here. And so Pilate's going, this is perfect. They're going to ask for Jesus because clearly he's done nothing. You can have Jesus or you can have Barabbas. You can have Barabbas if you want. Here's Barabbas. Barabbas. What do we know about Barabbas? Well, look at what it says in verse 19. Barabbas was a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. So get this, Barabbas, I'm not, I'm not overstating this to be dramatic. Barabbas is like a local terrorist. He's been using violence and murder to try to overthrow the government. So, so Pilate's going, hey, here you go. Do you want Jesus, who's innocent, or do you want this ISIS leader? What do they say? Give us Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. Well, Pilate's caught off guard. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Well, what do you want me to do with this one that they call the king of the Jews? And what do they say? Crucify him. Crucify him. Jesus, this whole time, stays silent, stays quiet. He's falsely accused. He's unjustly condemned. Have you ever been falsely accused of something? Have you ever faced some punishment for it? I remember one time early in high school, I, I was falsely accused of, of cheating on a test. This girl, Marin, had come into the class a little bit late and needed some kind of direction on kind of, hey, where do I start? What, what are we doing right now? Oh, we, it, was, it wasn't a test. It was a quiz. So, oh, we got this pop quiz. You know, here's what they said. And after the class, the teacher made both of us stay and said, you guys were cheating on that quiz. Now, I had cheated on lots of quizzes, but not that one. <laughs> and I remember just feeling so angry. I didn't do what you're accusing me of doing. And I explained myself and said, well, what, well but, but here's what happened. And, and let me tell you about this, because this isn't right. I mean, I didn't tell her that I had cheated on other things, but, but I, this, you're, you're falsely accusing me. This is not what happened. Here's what happened. Everything in you, when you're falsely accused, when you're falsely punished, says, no, 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 wait. And Jesus stays silent. The convicted criminal goes free. The innocent son of God, the king of the Jews, dies. Get this. There were three crosses on that hill. Jesus died in the middle one. Had this not happened, who, who's, who was going to take that cross? Barabbas. That one was reserved for him. Barabbas goes free. 
Jesus goes to the cross in his place. Listen, if you're trying to find yourself in this whole story, it's Barabbas. You and me, that's who we are. We're the guilty one. We're the convicted one. We're the one that deserves punishment, that deserves death, because these are not false charges against us. We have lived for ourselves. We have put love of ourselves above the love of other people. We have worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who deserves all glory and honor and praise. And we have scorned him and ignored him. And we deserve the wrath of God. And instead of Barabbas getting what he justly deserved, he goes free and Jesus takes his place. That's the gospel. Why did he do it? As I said, Jesus is then crucified between criminals. And I want to read this part to you. There's a phrase that really stands out as Jesus is there between two criminals hanging, beginning to be crucified. Look at what it says in chapter 23, verse 35. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he's the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are king of the Jews, save yourself. Look at verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Three times, Jesus is challenged by the people, by the soldiers, by the other criminals. Save yourself. In fact, do you see that last one by the criminal? Save yourself and us. But here's the reality. Jesus can't save himself and us. If he saves himself, we're dead. If he goes to the cross, if he endures this humiliation and suffering and pain, we live. Why did he do it? Well, it doesn't take long. Jesus, under the weight of sin, not his own, but ours, dies relatively quickly. It says in verse 46, Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. He's then buried in a new tomb that belonged to Joseph of Arimathea. And the Son of God, who created life, surrenders to death. Why did he do it? See, here's what you have to know is it didn't happen by surprise. This didn't catch Jesus off guard. Jesus wasn't unclear about what was going to happen. He knew this was going to happen. In fact, much earlier in the Gospel of Luke, if you flip back, you you don't need to turn there. We'll put this on the screen. But in Luke chapter 9, Jesus actually predicts that this very thing would happen. Look at what he says in Luke chapter 9, verse 22. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So before any of these things ever happened, Jesus had told his disciples, hey, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to rise. They didn't believe him. 
They tried to talk him out of it. No, 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 no. Because they had this whole idea that if he's the king of kings, if he's the Messiah, then he's going to come conquering. Well, Jesus did come conquering. He conquered sin and Satan and death. But he did it through laying down his life. That's what we saw last week in John chapter 10. Jesus said this, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. He dies, he rises. Again, not as a surprise, but because that's what he chose to do. And then he calls us, amazingly, he calls us to follow him in this way of life. Look at what he says in Luke 9 as well. He said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? That's the story of some of your lives. You have gained the whole world. You have been successful. You have been competent. You've had a great family. You've had a great career. You've had great vacations. You've got nice stuff. And you've forfeited yourself because you're still a slave to your sin. The wrath of God is still hanging over your head. And Jesus says, listen, if you want to follow me, you got to die to yourself. you got to die to whatever you thought was the path of life. you got to take up your cross daily, he says, and follow me. And this is why what we've said over these last few weeks is that the shape of the Christian life is what we call the J-curve. The J-curve. That we follow Jesus into death in anticipation of resurrection. We follow Jesus into suffering. We follow Jesus into pain. We follow Jesus into loss. We follow Jesus into bad diagnoses. And we do all these things because Jesus himself suffered. And so we experience the fellowship of his suffering as we go down with him into death as we hope for resurrection. This is what Jesus experienced. This is what we experienced. This is what we're called to follow him in. The question is, why does he do that? And why would we follow him in that path? You know, as that verse we just read said, we have to die to ourselves. And so I want to share with you, as we conclude this message and conclude this series, three kinds of death that we experience as we follow Jesus. First one is that trouble finds us. One of the ways we die to ourselves is we experience pain and we experience loss. Some of you have had this. You got a diagnosis. You've never quite been the same. You weren't looking for it. You weren't asking for it, but trouble found you. Some of you experience this with the loss of a job, the loss of a career path. You weren't looking for it, but trouble found you. Some of you have experienced this as those you love and used to be close to you now don't really want anything to do with you. And you go, I don't know what I did and I don't know what happened and and it's not the way it was. Some of you have been cheated on Abandoned, left behind. You weren't looking for it, and you didn't deserve it, but trouble found you. 
That's one way that we experience death as we follow Jesus. Now, what's the name for this? Well, the name for this is suffering. This is suffering. Suffering is when trouble finds us. Suffering is when pain and difficulty finds us. Now, for a Christian, there's also a second kind of death, and this is when we realize there's actually trouble in us. Okay, this isn't that the trouble's coming and finding me. This is that I realize, oh my gosh, I have trouble in me. I have sin. I have weakness. I have unbelief. I have things that I have lived for and trusted in besides Jesus, and that is not what I want to do. And so we call this repentance. When there's trouble in us, we die to ourselves. We die to an idea that we had of ourselves that was, well, I'm really great, and I'm better than other people, and I'm I'm not as bad as them. And, And we go, you know what? I am as bad. I am as guilty. I need grace. I'm Barabbas. We deal with that, and that's called repentance. So as we follow Jesus, we follow him into suffering. And we repent of our sins. Now get this, Jesus experienced suffering. Trouble coming against him that he did not deserve. Jesus did not experience repentance. You get that? He did not sin. There was no trouble in him. So we have to repent, he does not. But what does this whole sequence represent? What does this whole story represent? It doesn't represent trouble in Jesus, and it doesn't even just represent trouble coming against Jesus. Here's what it represents. It represents Jesus moving toward trouble. Jesus laying his life down for the sheep. Jesus keeping his mouth shut when he could silence everyone in a moment. Why does he do it? Because he wants to move toward trouble. Why? Because this third thing is what we call love. That's what love is. Love is I move toward discomfort. I move toward pain. I move toward loss. I move toward disappointment. And I endure it, not because I have to, but because I'm choosing to. Now get this. That is insane. If not for the gospel. You mean to tell me you're going to choose discomfort? You're going to choose financial loss? You're going to choose to rearrange your life to care for an aging parent? You're going to choose to hang in that difficult marriage? You're going to choose to keep forgiving and keep forgiving? You're going to choose to be joyful in the midst of that circumstance? You're going to choose to not lash out and say the full truth about someone else? You're going to just bear it? That's crazy. Unless the Son of God, the King of Kings himself, did that for us. Listen, to experience suffering, you just need to be human. To experience repentance, you need to be a Christian. But to choose to pursue suffering, to pursue pain, to pursue trouble. You need the Spirit of God. You need the love of Jesus alive in your heart. Why did he do it? Because he loves you. And he loves me. And he kept moving toward us. 
no matter what it costs. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the love that you show us in Christ. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God, had we been there, we would have been the ones mocking. We would have been the ones betraying and the ones denying. So I pray that we would hear the voice of Jesus who said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Thank you for the love that made him stay. Fill our hearts with that same love. We pray in Christ's name, amen.